Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is an RNZ podcast. She just quietly walked up as if in a trance, almost whimpered, uh, the name Carly, and the actual fatal blow was just a quick thrust. Hi, I'm Jesse Mulligan, host of the Afternoons program on RNZ National. And this is Crimes NZ, is a series where I talk to people who are connected in some way or other with serious crimes that have happened here in New Zealand. This episode features lawyer Marie Dyberg, who represented Anna Brown who was charged with killing Carly Stewart at a pamper party in West Auckland. What happened that morning or afternoon is something quite inexplicable that nobody can really explain and nobody can understand. Because what we actually had is a group of women, friends, relatives in fact, and the deceased, uh, Carly, was related. She was the cousin of Anna Brown, they were close. They hadn't seen each other for a year or so, but but Anna Brown and Carly, they called each other Cuzzy, and they were close. And a lot of the atmosphere that went on Facebook, went on social media, was with a group of women who were laughing, they were joking, they were teasing each other, they were getting their nails done, and it, it really was just a, a group of women together, uh, who somebody, uh, Manuel, had organised everyone together just to give them a bit of an outlet, something that they can, uh, as I say, pamper themselves, something good for each other. And then from almost from nowhere uh, came this incredible situation where there was somebody who was stabbed, stabbed in the head. And it's not as if it was preceded by any great big fight. Uh, it was a bit of push and shove. There was something in the corridor. Everything was settled down. Nobody thought there was any issue at all. They all wandered away, thought that everything was fine, and that there'd just been this little bit of a squirmish. And no harsh words, no hot rage, uh, no great plunging of a knife into somebody. What happened was there was Anna Brown just uh, from the witnesses just quietly walked in, just walked normally, approached the deceased. The evidence was that she was trance-like, that she seemed to be fixated, that she seemed to be, her eyes were quite strange and she wasn't uh, in any way uh, emotional, she just quietly walked up as if in a trance, almost whimpered uh, the name Carly, and the actual fatal blow was described by those who saw it, because nobody really 
took much notice was just a quick thrust. And it looked to uh, the witnesses or those witnesses who saw it just like a punch or one of the witnesses said a quick pop on the nose was how they described it. And then she dropped the knife. Everybody uh, was screaming at her, get out, go, leave, which she did for a period of time, left the knife there uh, in the room, and uh, and that was the result. So it, as I say, was very inexplicable given, firstly, the background uh, would not have warranted this sort of reaction and the circumstances of the the fatal blow itself. Unfortunately, where the blow was, was a part where there was no bone protection, you know, within the skull, within the head. So there was nothing to stop the knife going in. And of course, um, the fatal blow, of course, was uh, it struck in, it struck the brain and it was a fatal blow. So that was the, the background of it. And then you had the the friends, the, the women who were there at the party who were telling Anna Brown, leave, go. And she's in the state saying, why? Why do I have to go? What's happened? Um, what have I done? And they still pursued her and said, you must leave, which she did. And she left the house, but she didn't actually run away. She stayed within the vicinity, and then she returned back. She came back to the house, and by then, of course, the police were there, and she's still saying, what's happened? You know, why, why are you, in effect, why are you treating me this way? And she returned, obviously, to a very hostile um, crowd of friends. One person even threw a stool at her, and she's very perplexed at why is this happening? and she is crying and very disoriented according to the police evidence was that she's there on the side of the road having returned and in a state of, as I say, bewilderment and crying and saying, what's going on? I don't know what's going on. So that's the uh, background. Yeah, and you mentioned there wasn't much in, in the events preceding the stabbing that would suggest why she did no. it, although you haven't, you haven't mentioned drugs and or alcohol. Was there much of that around? No, no. And so, and this and this ties up, and this is to do with what, how the defence was run at trial. Uh, there was, obviously, um, alcohol, and some of the people who were there, some of the women were saying, well, look, I was pretty drunk, and... Uh, and certainly those observing Anna uh, Brown all gave, some of them gave evidence that she was intoxicated. She certainly was unsteady on her feet. She wasn't walking well. And so for some of the people who were there, including Anna, there was the, um, the presence of alcohol. Now, I'll say with the alcohol at the moment, when they finally took a test eight and a half hours later at the police station, we still don't know why there was the uh, delay, 
uh, was not explained. It was just the urine test. Well, that only really tests the alcohol. But when they extrapolate it out and work backwards and say, well, this was the reading eight and a half hours later, so we can then work and figure out what would have the alcohol uh -huh. content have been at the time she was heavily intoxicated. There was some drugs, but because the police did not take a blood test at the time, which one would have to say would have ought to have been automatic because blood will tell you what drugs are in the system with a bit of like what kind of drugs to what degree. And the blood test would have been a very reliable test for everyone to have just known what was the drug situation. Yeah. Because what about the witnesses? The Did they have anything to say about that? Well, of course, the witnesses said we didn't observe any drugs. <laughs> so one is going to say, well, they're hardly going to say, well, we were doing drugs or there were drugs being taken or I saw somebody sort of give drugs or whatever and then somebody ends up dead, you're going to get a bit of a closed ranking when that uh, comes up. So unfortunately, much and all as we would really have wanted an honest foundation for the drug situation, it wasn't forthcoming and it did make the automatism very difficult to run without that evidential basis. Yeah, we'll come to that in a moment, your defence. Just out of interest, and I don't know if this is something you can speak to or not, but did Anna Brown have much violence in her history? Had she done many violent acts um, previously? Yes, yes, that, yes that, that was before the jury. Um, and there, um, sorry, um, sorry, was not before the jury, but yeah, there had been, but some time ago. That became relevant, obviously, at sentencing, but not in the trial. So you have the job of defending this person who presumably several witnesses have seen do the act. Um, what are your options and, and what did you go for? Well, naturally, identification uh, was not at issue. And that in itself is quite extraordinary because you have a situation where there are a number of people in a room and that you, you just simply walk in, walk up to somebody and then there is this very serious assault with a knife. So that has to make the situation quite bizarre to even start with. So what you're then left with is what is the intent at the time? Because it's for the Crown to prove uh, beyond reasonable doubt that at the time, exactly at the time of that fatal blow, the intent was either that Anna Brown meant to cause the death uh, of Carly, or that she did something that she knew at the time that the blow was struck, that death was likely to result. And even though she knew that, nonetheless, she consciously decided to go ahead and take the risk. She may not have meant to kill her in that second limb of murderous intent, but nonetheless she would have to have known that what she was doing was likely to result in death, but, 
but could care less whether she death ensued or not. And our argument was no murderous intent, therefore you're left with manslaughter. You are left with an unlawful act, which obviously the assault was, but no murderous intent. And so that's what our argument was, that even though by the time we went to trial, automatism was taken away from us by the judge, uh, nonetheless, in all the circumstances, we certainly still had that argument that the, uh, there was just no intent at the time that reached the murderous intent. And there was this issue, of course, of the spiking of the drink. Oh, tell me about that. And so that was... Um, what, what there was, was there was a cup, a white cup that was left on the windowsill of a child's room. And that was a room in which Anna Brown was in before she had a, another uh, conversation with someone else. And, and they, were, they were both drunk. They were both sort of talking about their past and their past addictions and so forth. Now, the... Police took a photograph of that cup, and that was sufficient for them to say, well, it's unusual, that seems to be out of place. But unfortunately, what then happened, instead of keeping the contents of what was in that cup, they poured it out. So that was lost to us. And Anna Brown had told a psychiatrist, Dr. Pillai, that she took a drink from that cup. She'd gone to the bathroom, came back, took a drink. There was something very unusual about the taste in that. And after that, that is when she had just simply had no real recollection of what happened after that. Mm, and there would have been perhaps a purpose in spiking her drink because you say, well, why would anyone do that? But Anna was... She was not overly aggressive as such, but she was certainly drunk. She was offensive. She uh, was acting out of line. And so that might have been in somebody's interest to say, well, I'm not going to tackle her full on, but we really want to give her something to calm her down. And therefore, there could be a drug um, available that would have the effect of calming her down. There was a drug called WAS, and that would have, there was very little known about that particular drug at the time. It's certainly illegal, certainly unlawful. And there was evidence by the police themselves and from what we would call straight police officers, and they were saying that even after she had been taken into custody, she was certainly agitated. She was acting in a psychotic way. This is their description, not ours. You know, having a, a seizure, the appearance of a seizure, seeming to be talking to someone else, going up the wall, as it were, and calling out to her cousin, which, of course, would have been Carla, help me come and help me, so much so that they got a suicide gown on her and moved her to um, a mattress in the cell.
and to the police officers, the appearance that they had was that she was schizophrenic and talking as though there was someone else in the cells with her, you know, and acting in this very bizarre way. So we felt that we definitely had a basis for running the, the lack of intent and that state of intoxication uh, and her behaviour afterwards was such was that she she just simply did not form that intent at the time that would have uh, put it up to murder. Mary, just got a, a few minutes left, and I wanted to um, ask you about media coverage of this case. Um, you had a front row seat. Um, what did you make of it? We had, yes, we we had a huge amount of media coverage. It was covered throughout the whole of the trial, and uh, Steve Bronius, of course, has covered it and spoke to a number of people. Uh, so whether we're going to get a book out on it. Who knows? We shall have to watch that space. But there were two things here. I think right from the beginning, it was this reference to pamper party. It was a pamper party. So in people's minds, here are a group of women get together to look after each other, to be good to each other, and it ends up in murder. How did it go just so wrong on that particular day? And of course... Sadly, you have this almost spectacle, this salacious interest, particularly from men, when there is violence from woman to woman. You know, there's somehow there is uh, this, oh, we love it, it's a cat fight, and we all yeah. gather around, and it, it's just an awful, scandalous, disgraceful way of looking at things. But that's what it is out there, and, and it just seems to attract that attention when you've got guys who get into a scrap or a fight at a party or on the street, you don't get this uh, almost um, Roman gladiator sort of thing where people are just really enjoying it and, and it's like that dreadful mixed martial arts thing recently where you're getting somebody, you know, like Joe Rogan saying, well, these women, they just gave it all, they punched, they kicked, they disfigured for five rounds and everybody's just thriving on it and because it's women and I just think it's just as a general uh, for me moving away from it because I've definitely acted in other cases where the deceased has been a woman and the defendant's been a woman it just somehow takes on as I say this almost um, salacious spectator thing that that the public seem to have when women get together and scrap. It's just awful. This has been Crimes NZ with me, Jesse Mulligan. You can find more episodes of the series on the RNZ podcast page or on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your favourite podcasts. If you like this series, try Black Sheep. It's another award-winning RNZ podcast series. And along with other great podcasts, you can find it on our RNZ podcast page. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ 
the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.